And he said, it's back. I said, what's back? He said, the UFO is back. I went home and changed clothes and collected a few people to take with me. We went out in the forest and we had an experience. It, it appears that he may be moving a little bit this way. It's, it's brighter than it has been. Yeah. It's coming this way. It is definitely coming this way. It's haunted me ever since. Okay, here, here he comes from the south. He's coming toward us now. Now we're observing what appears to be a beam coming down to the ground. As a government investigator, my job with all this was to go to the data and say, well, what does, what does that tell us? And the audio tape is a very important part of that, that data. There's a whole fleet of them all come to NSA. My God. They're all going against the wind. The wind's 120 miles to the west. Oh, all they do. But if there's a so welcome back to Sounds Interesting. I'm Peter Barso, and I'm here with my co-host, Shiloh Figgin. Hello, happy to be back. Um, I'm really excited about this episode. Uh, we're joined today by our associate producer, Gabriel Hutchcraft. Hi there, uh, and happy to join it. I uh, hope you out with this really interesting and, and really fun topic. Those clips we played off the top concern two extremely curious events that happened 40 years apart, both involving the U.S. military and unidentified flying objects. Yes, UFOs. In late December 1980, there was a series of reported sightings and encounters with UFOs near Rendlesham Forest in England. Some of the events were captured in a remarkable tape recording by Lieutenant Colonel Charles Hall. In the spring of 2020, in the early days of the pandemic no less, the Pentagon released three cockpit recordings of U.S. Navy jets chasing UFOs. The Pentagon confirmed the recordings were authentic, and unexplained. The events in 1980 and in 2020 share a unique distinction. What we hear on the audio tape is probably the most important evidence. So using the cockpit recordings as a starting point, we decided to do an episode that looks at the UFO news moving into the mainstream because of the Pentagon event. We're comparing the Pentagon recordings with perhaps the most famous ever audio tape of a UFO encounter, the Rendlesham Forest Incident in 1980. Even though Rendlesham is today one of the most important and most famous UFO events in history, it remained secret for years after it happened, and even now is still shrouded in mystery. By contrast, the Pentagon tapes have set off a media frenzy that's been hard to miss, whether you pay attention to UFOs or not. From a Navy destroyer... Some in the media and within the realm of ufology, people who investigate UFOs, are hailing it as a watershed moment. It's all heady stuff, and some of it already seems to be coming true. Perhaps emboldened by this new transparency, a growing number of scientists, politicians, and military personnel, who have until now been sitting on the sidelines or dismissing such events out of hand, have begun to state publicly UFOs warrant serious investigation. 
Now, all of this has a kind of 1990s X-Files feel to it. And I got to say, I have a long time fascination with UFOs. What about you guys? I mean, I think for me, um, most of my UFO information comes from you, Peter. Uh, you know, it's no secret that I was a little bit trepidatious about <laughs> doing this episode. Fear that we would, we would come across as like tinfoil hat conspiracy theorist. And I was like, what is this going to do for my career? <laughs> so that's that's where I'm coming at it, at it from. But the, um, the New York Times and the, you know... The New Yorker magazine putting out putting out all those articles definitely helped uh, sort of ease some of my nerves. What do you think, uh, Gabe? I do think it's nice that we're seeing a lot more of this sort of open talk about UFOs, but I've always sort of been long fascinated by them. I always thought it was like the strange cross-section of science fiction and mysteries in real life that even if it may or may not be true, it's always full of sort of strange and interesting stories, no matter sort of where you get them from. So I'm happy to see a lot more talk about it, but I'm sort of okay with sort of being seen as a, a, the niche weirdo who likes the UFOs and all those strange stories. And I watched a lot of the X-Files too, and I think it was like the best show to come out of the 90s. Um, I know a lot of people might disagree with that, but I'll defend it. And I've got your back on that one, Gabe. There's an interesting passage. Owner Gabriel, if you can read that from a high-ranking official in the UK Ministry of Defense. All right. Here we have a piece from, an excerpt from Encountered Rendlesham Forest by Nick Pope. It is from Lord Peter Hill Norton, a former UK Chief of Defense Staff. The UK boasts that's sort of like the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the US um, and the Chair of NATO's Military Committee, writing about the Rendlesham Forest incident. Here's what he said. My position, both privately and publicly expressed over the last dozen years or more, is that there are only two possibilities, either A, an intrusion into our airspace and a landing by an unidentified craft took place at Rendlesham, as described, or B, the deputy commander of an operational nuclear-armed U.S. Air Force base in England and a large number of his enlisted men were either hallucinating or lying. This is a direct quote from a letter dated October 22nd, 1997, that Lord Hill Norton had sent to Lord Gilbert, the Minister of State at the Ministry of Defense. Pretty startling stuff, so we'll put that assertion to the test in this episode. We're going to hear from Colonel Halt, as well as hearing some hair-raising excerpts from that tape itself. We'll also hear uh, from Nick Pope, the author of that book we just quoted, and a former civilian UFO investigator for the UK Department of Defense. And remember that we said that gimbal video from the Pentagon series would be important? Well, Canadian ufologist Chris Rutowski from the University of Manitoba spotted something on that video that blows the whole Pentagon transparency theory right out of the water. And we'll hear from him as well. Two UFO cases, 40 years apart, both involving the US military, where what we hear on the audio tape is the most important evidence. It's the curious case of the Rendlesham tape. We have a theory of the case that ties these events together. A real whodunit played out in sound. And the real question is, 
What do your ears believe? No one is more central to the events in Rendlesham Forest than Colonel Charles Hall, the deputy base commander of RAF Woodbridge. On a cold December night in 1980, he took a tape deck with him and his men and searched the woods for signs of an unidentified aircraft landing or crashing near the base. We interviewed Colonel Hall, now retired, and heard firsthand about the events and the tape recording he made, which we combined here with some excerpts from the tape itself. Actually, I was actually I was involved over three nights. Uh, the first night was the night of December 25th, the morning of December 26th. Um, typically in the morning, I would go by the police station and pick up the police blotters around six o'clock in the morning and take them up the office and go through everything from the previous day. So I was all set for the day's activities. That particular morning, the morning of December 26th, I walked by the police station, went in, and the desk sergeant started laughing. He said, Colonel, you're not going to believe this, but last night Burroughs, Penniston, and Cabanasack, three cops, were out in the woods all night chasing UFOs. And I kind of chuckled, and he said, the lieutenant, who was the on-duty senior police officer, said, don't put anything in the blotter. I said, what do you know? He said, well... The cops thought they saw a donned aircraft in the forest outside the east gate at RAF Woodbridge, and they went to investigate, and they were gone a long time, and they chased a bunch of lights around. Well, I said, you got to put something in the blotter, something to the effect that maybe they saw some lights and they investigated, but you don't know if anything was fine. Now, the following day, something happened, or the following night, but I didn't learn about it two years later. Two nights later, I was at the what we had an annual sort of a get-together of all the officers in the combat support group, 40-some officers, and their significant others. It was a covered-ish dinner. It was a, sort of the end-of-the-year celebration, Christmas, whatnot, end of the year, all rolled in one. When the on-duty flight lieutenant, senior cop on duty, came in and said, I've got to talk to you and the base commander now, privately. So we went into the coat room because that's about the only private place in the little building. And he said, it's back. So what's back? He said, the UFO is back. So it was decided that I would go out and investigate. My boss, the base commander, would stay behind because he had to give some speeches and make some presentations. I went home and changed clothes and collected a few people to take with me. We went out in the forest and we had an experience. It's haunted me ever since. Uh, we had a system in the office, a linear, a dictaphone. The secretary had a big machine or a recorder, I guess you'd call it. And I carried a tape recorder almost everywhere I went because I didn't like to take notes. So I carried it with me almost everywhere I went. 150 feet or more from the initial, I should say, suspected impact point. Having a lift car, you can't get the light all the work. Uh, mechanical problems. Okay, stop, stop. Right on. Hey, this is Erie. You're right about the abrasion. 
Uh, they had marked it, and we got there and we looked at it, and there were definitely indentations in the ground. We're measuring them, they're equidistant apart. And we're trying to figure out what's going on. When one of the guys with me says, look out there, there's a bright glowing object. Now we had a starlight scope with us, we call a starlight scope now, and now it's called a light vision scope, it's first generation. Pretty big clumsy thing, but it did work. And you could look and you could see the more intense light, greenish light at the landing site. And we saw a look out into the field, farmer's field beyond us. There's a glowing red object about the size of a basketball or a beach ball, something in that side area. dripping off. That's the only way I can describe it. It's shedding something. And I'm standing there trying to figure this is not logical. Couldn't be ball lightning doing that. What could it be? The object actually came into the forest and moved through the trees. So in other words, it was under intelligent control because it was bobbing up and down and going through the trees. And we're just standing there in awe. I said, let's try and get close to it. So we tried to move up close to the field where it was on in the forest at the edge of the field. And it receded back out into the farmer's field. We're standing at the fence line at the edge of the field looking at it. Directly across from us is the farmer's house. And the glow is reflecting off the farmer's windows. It just looks like the house is on fire, it's so bright. All that time we were watching the object, the barnyard animals were making a lot of noise. We watched the object probably for, I don't know, maybe a minute or two. And suddenly it exploded like fireworks, just silently exploded into five white objects. And they disappeared. So I said, let's go out into the field and examine the field. Perhaps we can find some evidence of whatever was coming off it. While we were out there, one of the members of my crew looked up and says, look in the sky up there. There's three objects, bright multicolored objects probably 3,000 feet or 4,000 feet, moving in synchronization all together, making sharp angular turns as though they're doing some kind of a grid search. In the meantime, I'm on my radio calling the command post, asking them to call the air traffic control people and telling them where to look and see what they can see. And they keep telling me they don't see anything. We watched them probably several minutes. We moved further out in the field to get a better view of them. And we see two glowing white objects to the south. I couldn't discern a shape that said they were so bright. It, it appears to be maybe moving a little bit this way. It's, it's brighter than it has been. It's coming this way. It is definitely coming this way. 
two pieces of her train off. There is no doubt about it. This is weird. The object, one of them, came directly overhead at very high speed, stopped, and sent down the equivalent of a laser beam in our field. Okay, here, here, he comes from the south. He's coming toward us now. Now we're observing what appears to be a beam coming down to the ground. This is unreal. Uh, it was a very focused beam, probably 10, 15 inches in diameter. Uh, we watched it for several minutes thinking it was a weapon, a warning, some kind of communication. And just as suddenly as it appeared, click, it went off. The object moved back to the south some and was over Woodbridge Base. We could see it sending down similar beams there. Meantime, I'm talking to the command post. Nobody seems to be too concerned. Nobody seems excited. Nobody seems interested. Uh, this all was took place over three or four hours. Uh, while we went into the far field trying to get a better view, we waded through a small stream and we got all wet. Well, about four o'clock, I got tired, hungry, wet, and frustrated. Nobody seemed to care or anything. I said, let's pack it in and go back to the base. So we went back to the base. So Colonel Halt and his men are having an extraordinary experience. It's really mind-blowing stuff. The only problem is something's not right. The base and everybody back there is not reacting the way you'd expect them to. They're strangely disinterested. I don't know, as you guys listen to that, uh, what you thought about the reaction or the lack thereof interesting on that last point saying about how they sent him out there to look for UFO but no one was really interested too much that he found a UFO especially what based on his description sounded very strange I know there's a lot of different ideas based on what that could have been here and there after the fact but at the time it sounds really strange and just kind of odd to me and probably maybe to other people that they sent him out to look for a certain thing. He supposedly found a certain thing. No one was too interested in what he found, and nobody really was too interested in the overall picture either. I mean, just to think about what the alternative might have been, maybe they they didn't believe him, right? Like, maybe they thought that he, not necessarily making it up, but, like, I think that depending on what your biases are, you're like more inclined to believe in you in extraterrestrials or you're less inclined to believe in them in the same way that you are with sort of like, um, what is the word that I'm looking for? Like any sort of supernatural stuff. So it's like, you know, if you believe in ghosts, you're going to think that the, your creaky apartment is haunted. If you don't believe in ghosts, you're going to think your apartment is old. So maybe in the same way, those people who weren't reacting the way that you, like you two might've reacted to that information. It was because their biases were more inclined to like not believe that stuff in the first place or like not believe in UFOs in the first place. Just a thought. That's very interesting point. And from that, you could say that they didn't really believe they might see UFO. They just sent him out to cover their back and then, whatever he found doesn't really matter as long as they sent someone out just like the because he said earlier the all the mps were all like oh ufos and ufos so yeah i guess he had to do something right so it's mm -hmm. possible if he, like you're saying if he didn't believe it i guess maybe they just covered their back and then they just said well i did something and it doesn't really matter what happened after that but it could have been anything in a sense. yeah and you think about like how much stuff is just protocol like checking the boxes like 
to say that you're doing like, you know, you're, you're following all the safety measures just to say that you're following them and they don't really care what the, what the results is. Like we're talking about like bureaucrats and like systems. We're not talking, you know, and so maybe, maybe it was just like, well, we've checked that box. Like, please don't make me do any more paperwork. Like not necessarily a cover up, but, but like laziness. Or I guess the third option could be they sent him out looking for something that, and they were curious to what he find, but they ate so much at the dinner that they're all just like, eh, I don't care, I'm going to bed. And there's a exactly. party going on. So party too hard. Yeah, they were all too drunk. <laughs> well, I hope that that wasn't the case with air traffic control. Goodbye. <laughs> your, your points are very well taken, but there's just this one kind of fly in the ointment. Uh, or a couple. One thing is, and, and Colonel Hall referred to it, this was the actual the third night of three nights of activity that the base was aware of. So the I'd be more inclined to believe it was just a matter of attitude if it was a one-off event. The reaction itself, because you said this yourself, Shadow, protocol, and nobody's probably bigger on protocol than, than the military, was to at least go through the pretense of making an effort, right? Something's buzzing the base. we got to look like we're interested. But protocol would have demanded that they react in certain ways. If they had radar information, for instance, that they convey it to the commander. If they had other means of supporting him or reacting to what he was reporting, that they react to that, at least in some way. I'm not saying it's a matter of agreeing or disbelieving what he was reporting. Simply, there's protocol to receive and react to reports that they were not following. And that seems strange. And the third thing is, remember the conversation in the closet, right? Deputy base commander, base commander, head of the MPPs, basically demanding they come, somebody come with him because the UFOs are back. Remember? There's something else is going on. And here's part of what I'm setting up later for the theory of the case, which we'll tie together with the tape. So maybe we should play that second clip now. I mentioned to you earlier that the air traffic controller said they didn't see anything. They did, but they didn't talk until they retired because they learned first thing what happened if they reported a UFO is they would be decertified and become a poker mechanic or some other thing if they were lucky. They actually saw the object on their scope twice at, at speeds greater than 2,000 mile an hour go by and come back by. They saw, physically saw the glowing object. They physically saw it going into the forest where we were. They didn't say this until 10 years or more later. I was pretty naive about the whole thing, to be very honest with you, and very trusting. And I was, I, I put it mildly, taken advantage of. As I was entering the office, the wing commander came, the senior officer on the base. We shared an office or a building. He said he had heard me on the radio calling the command post multiple times. He said, that was some light you had last night. I said, it sure was. And he said, I made a tape recording of part of it. He said, come on in the office and play it for me. So I played it for him. Now, this was Monday, Sunday. And he said, let me have the tape. So I gave him the tape and the tape recorder. I said, what are you going to do, boss? He said, I'm going to take it to the 3rd Air Force, which is Air Force headquarters in England, staff meeting Wednesday morning. They had one every week. I thought, uh-oh, there goes my career. 
So he took it, and I worried all week. He came back Wednesday afternoon, and I was waiting at the door. And I said, do I still have a job? And he laughed and threw me the tape. I said, what do we do? He said, uh, we're going to do nothing. I said, what do you mean? He said, I played the tape for the general and the whole staff. The general looked around to everybody and the staff and said, well, what do we do? Nobody said anything. So the general in his infinite wisdom said, well, it happened off the base. It's a British affair. Case closed. I said, does that mean I don't have to do anything? He said, no. You get with Squadron Leader Moreland, who is the British RAF liaison officer on the base, and see what he wants. Okay, well, the liaison officer, uh, Don Moreland, so he said, write me a memo to talk from. So I wrote him a memo up, just sort of an abbreviation and a cleaned up version of what had happened. He gave it to him. It was only for his use to talk from. Nick Pope, a former civilian investigator for the UK Department of Defense, who ran the department's uh, UFO case file for 21 years, tells us what happened next. It was literally front page news in the United Kingdom. There it was on the front page of probably the best-selling Sunday tabloid newspaper in the United Kingdom. UFO lands in Suffolk, and that's official. And the reason they said that's official is, is because, of course, they had the initial report that Colonel Holt sent to us at the Ministry of Defence. So I pulled the file out. I did a cold case review. This was clearly the most interesting and compelling incident that we had in our files. It's been called Britain's Roswell. Here we had an incident at a very strategically important military base in the NATO alliance. Multiple military witnesses, including the deputy base commander, physical evidence. And uh, it was almost like the perfect storm of a UFO case in terms of what you would want. No, I mean, as, as a government investigator, my job with all this was to go to the data and say, well, what does, what does that tell us? And the audio tape is a very important part of that, that data. Well, here, here he comes from the south. He's coming toward us now. Now we're observing what appears to be a beam coming down to the ground. This is unreal. Having done the cold case review, having had access to the original papers, and indeed having spoken to many of the witnesses myself over the years, I can tell you what it wasn't, but I can't tell you what it was. I use the analogy that this is rather like an unsolved crime, and it just sits there on the file. There's a whole fleet of them over on the NSA. We're going against the wind. The wind's 120 knots to the west. Oh, they do. But if there's a it's But again, as with the Rendlesham tape, this, this does two things. Firstly, it gives us those important data points. But secondly, almost more importantly, it gives us the insight into the state of mind. Bear in mind, these are the top guns. These people do not 
impress easily. And now, when these people come forward, uh, nobody's laughing at it. Maybe in 1980, there was a little bit of eye-rolling and little green men. I I mean, look, when I was doing this job for the Ministry of Defence, I spoke to a number of military and um, civilian pilots, and many of them had had sightings, but very few of them went on the record. And one of them said to me, look, I don't want to be known as flying saucer Fred for the rest of my Air Force career. So that was the mindset back then. And that was probably some of what happened to Colonel Holt and his people. But uh, now with with the Pentagon basically validating all this and, and releasing some information about it, not all, but but some, yeah, the pilots absolutely have top cover. Nobody is questioning their veracity. Nobody is questioning their judgment even, because even the the Pentagon is saying, yeah, we've looked at this and it's still unidentified. For a different perspective, we turn to one of the preeminent ufologists in Canada and well-recognized as an expert internationally. It's Chris Rutkowski. I'm a science writer. And for many years now, I've been studying uh, reports of UFOs and the associated phenomenon uh, that is ufology. I got into ufology um, more or less by accident. Uh, I was in astronomy uh, courses at the university, and uh, my professors were not all that interested in UFOs. In fact, they were downright dismissive of the entire uh, issue and all the phenomena. Uh, But the public was quite interested in what was going on. There was a a series of flaps or waves of UFOs in the mid-1970s, and uh, my professors were getting annoyed at the phone calls that were coming in, and I happened to be in my professor's office when some calls had been coming in and I offered to take them and and uh, before I knew it I was the one getting the phone calls from people reporting UFOs. Canada uh, and its relationship with UFOs has differed considerably from that of the United States um, particularly because the United States we're looking at it from a military perspective. Uh, They want to know whether the Russians were in fact responsible for what people were seeing, especially in the early days, the 1940s, 1950s, whereas Canada was looking at it more from a scientific perspective. Uh, The cases were and reports were being investigated and handled uh, initially by the Department of National Defense, but they passed it off to the National Research Council. Rakowski has published 10 books on UFOs, focusing on the Canadian experience including When They Appear, Falcon Lake, 1967, about one of Canada's most famous UFO cases. In 2019, Rakowski donated more than 30,000 of his personal UFO files to the University of Manitoba Archives and Special Collections. So he knows a thing or two about examining UFO evidence, and he brings a scientific rigor to his work. Now, we noted at the outset all the praise the Pentagon has garnered for releasing the cockpit recordings from the fighter jets. We asked Rakowski to look at the audio evidence. There's a whole fleet of them, all come to ASA. But I, they're all going against the wind. The wind's 120 miles to the west. Oh, all they do. But if there's a it's rotated. You know, that's a fascinating clip. And what we hear are some pilots who are commenting what they're observing as they're flying along. The video 
uh, actually doesn't match what we're actually hearing. Uh, these, these videos are incomplete. We don't have the full video. There's uh, some stuff that's been scrubbed off of them for security reasons. Um, and that's a, a problem because uh, uh, they're describing these objects that are zipping around and uh, uh, moving against the wind and so forth. And, uh, and yet uh, the object on the screen uh, is not doing any of that. In fact, it's sort of more, more or less motion, motionless in the center of the screen. What the pilots are, are seeing is something completely different. There's a whole fleet of them, what can I say? My God. It's roasted. So let's just take a moment to let that sink in. Because that's really fascinating stuff. So guys, I mean, if you think about the discussion we had earlier on, have anything you've heard kind of changed your opinions about maybe what your initial impressions were? I will say this does kind of because a lot of people do mention that back then they didn't really take the idea very seriously or it was kind of covered up and stuff. And it does kind of lend to the idea that the people who were taking seriously, the MPs and stuff, were all saying they, they seem to be really scared of there being a UFO, whereas the, the management either was indifferent or purposely trying not to seem like they were very interested, but just trying to maybe take out the MPs or things like that. But... I do think it's kind of interesting how they're now the the Pentagon is really trying to push themselves forward, saying, "Yes, we, we there's something out there. We know we don't know what it is." Instead of previously just trying to push it off on somebody else, supposedly, it just seems like yes, maybe they're being more open and acknowledging something was there, but these are something people already we all already saw before, so it could just be kind of like the similar kind of tactic from Rendlesham is like point out there's something yeah everybody knows there's something so we have to acknowledge it's there but instead of doing something about it we just sort of maybe give it a lip service because we have to acknowledge it because everyone's already seen it I don't know what do you think Sean? I think what Gabriel is saying is really interesting this like idea that they're now acknowledging like they're acknowledging that they don't know what it is or they're acknowledging that it's like something and it is really kind of curious why now like why why now um like is there some sort of like political motive is it just is it because like the culture has shifted to the point where you know i think I think it's it doesn't it doesn't feel absurd to be like yeah aliens probably exist we like don't know what form that that they take in like you know they might be like green men they might be bugs you know what I mean like we don't we don't know like what what they're what's out there and it does seem really absurd that we would be the this would be the only planet that that has that has life um and also, I think, too, like, when we're talking about, like, UFOs don't necessarily mean aliens. UFOs just mean it's unidentified flying object. What are they calling it now? They're not calling it UFOs. They're calling it something else. UAP. Okay. What does that stand for? Um, I think unidentified aerial phenomenon. That's it. Yeah, I think I kind of agree with that, too, that the idea is now they can't release before you could brush it off because no one wants to talk about it. So you just don't talk about it at all. But now you can't get away with not talking about it or saying nothing at all because there are too many people already ready to acknowledge it already exists. It's, you can't, you rely on the stigma of people just 
not wanting to talk about it anymore. So you have to at least acknowledge it, even if it's not necessarily something. Um, I think it's also, I think it's more, I'm more cynical. I think it's like absolving themselves of like responsibility if it is anything. Which sort of actually, like I said, we don't know, it sort of goes to the idea that there might be a more open about it now than they were then. But at the end of the day, there's not really a, still a whole lot we know. So we can't really independently verify anything they say. Peter? The only way I can kind of make sense of it all is to tie it back to the audio clues that we have, just to narrow down the focus in terms of the main actor in all of this is the Pentagon, the U.S. military. And let's keep in mind what Chris just revealed as we listened to a few clues from our interviews with Colonel Alt and the tape recording he made. Well, the following day, something happened or the following night, but I didn't learn about it until years later. 150 feet or more from the initial, I should say, suspected impact point. You got that set, Nevels? Yes, sir. Close okay. the tree right over. We just found the first night bird we've seen. We're about 150 to 200 yards from the site. The object moved back to the south some. It was over Woodbridge Base. We could see it sending down similar beams there. Yes, sir. Close okay. To the wood Closest to the Woodbridge Base. B.1. B.1. Meantime, I'm talking to the command post. Nobody seems to be too concerned. Nobody seems excited. Nobody seems interested. Sir, so 100 hours, one object still hovering over Woodbridge Base at about 5 to 10 degrees off the horizon. Well, I mentioned to you earlier that the air traffic controller said they didn't see anything. They did. They actually saw the object on their scope twice at, at speeds greater than 2,000 mile an hour go by and come back by. They saw, physically saw the glowing object. They physically saw it going into the forest where we were. They didn't say this until 10 years or more later. As I was enter, entering the office, the wing commander came, the senior officer on the base. He said he had heard me on the radio calling the command post multiple times. He said, that was some light you had last night. I said, it sure was. And he said, I made a tape recording of part of it. He said, come on in the office and play it for me. So I played it for him. Now, this was Monday, Sunday. And he said, let me have the tape. It, it, it appears that he may be moving a little bit this way. It's, it's brighter than it has been. Yeah. It's coming this way. Awesome. It is definitely coming this way. Pieces of it are shooting off. There is no doubt about it. This is weird. So I wrote him a memo up just sort of an abbreviation and a cleaned up version of what had happened, and gave it to him. It was only for his use to talk from. And there it was on the front page of probably the best-selling Sunday tabloid newspaper in the United Kingdom. UFO lands in Suffolk, and that's official, is because, of course, they had the initial report that Colonel Holt sent to us at the Ministry of Defense. I was pretty naive about the whole thing, to be very honest with you, and very trusting. And I was, I, I put it mildly taken advantage of. Okay, here, here he comes from the south. He's coming toward us now. Now we're observing what appears to be a beam coming down to the ground. This is unreal. So I would just submit this. The events at Randallstrom are part of a complex chain where the very top brass were in on a kind of a plan of deception. They use Colonel Halt as an unwitting pawn. 
They sent him out there to document something they had no intention of taking any action on or being honest about. But it was part of something that they had, they felt they had to do. At least acknowledge it. Maybe because it had been happening for three days in a row, we have to make some point of going about and documenting it. But then they didn't back him up and they made it quite bloody obvious that they had no interest in what he was doing. So, and on top of all that, he made a tape recording, I guess, which is the key thing. So he has the personal tape. Then he has, of course, his recollections and memories of what was going on. And then there's times three because there was three nights of incidents. And then you get something like the Pentagon tapes where they release the tapes and they scrub them, right? They scrub them to remove evidence they don't want you to see, but they don't change the audio. Is that sloppy? I don't know. But it's right there for people like investigators like Chris to see and spot, right? So he's pointing out, and anyone can do this, folks. You can go to the Wikipedia site, for instance, and look at the tape, listen to the audio, and watch the tape, and you'll see they don't match. What you're watching is not what you're hearing the pilots describe. So, again, I think this brings us back. The main point, the theory of the case is they were up to games back in the days of Rendlesham, as is evidence on the audio that we have, and they're up to the same games now. I believe the truth is out there, but it's not going to come from the Pentagon. Usually UFO reports don't have any physical evidence. Well, Rendlesham does have physical evidence. Uh, usually you don't have any recorded interviews during the observations. Well, Rendlesham does have that. The audio tapes, obviously, are a big part of that when it comes to the F-18 Super Hornets that were involved in, in these three events. There's a whole fleet of them all coming in and say. It, it appears to be maybe moving a little bit this way. It's, it's brighter than it has been. Yeah. It's coming this way. It is definitely coming this way. But that creates another problem. If the truth is out there, who can we trust to reveal it? There still might be some reluctance from uh, academics to publish on the subject of UFOs, although it's perfectly legitimate to publish on the subject of searching for extraterrestrial intelligence. Um, and that paradox is quite interesting because uh, every year there are uh, thousands of reports of UFOs from individuals, including uh, military and, and uh, um, you know, good witnesses such as pilots and so forth, uh, and so we have this, this body of data that nobody seems to know what to do with. And these three events, by the way, of course, are just the tip of the iceberg. These are just the ones that the public know about. There are many, many more. Uh, something interesting, uh, a, a well-known, or maybe not today, but Chuck DeCaro, who was a well-known reporter, independent reporter at the time, and also worked for CNN, uh, took a copy of my tape years ago and had it analyzed by the people who analyzed and worked on the Watergate tapes and said they did a voice stress analysis. He said, you guys are really stressed out there on part of that tape. I said, you don't have to tell me. I know that. It's changed my mind about a lot of things. I'm firmly convinced we're not alone. Okay, here, here he comes from the south. He's coming toward us now. Now we're observing what appears to be a beam coming down to the ground. This is unreal. Even though we've been working hard on this new season, The Curious Case of the Rendlesham Tape is our first episode in quite some time. 
largely due to some daunting pandemic challenges. I'm sure everybody knows about those. So we have a lot of wonderful and generous friends and mentors to thank for helping us out, including Fatima Zaidi, Amanda Capito, Dan Spearin, Amelia King, Graham, Melissa, Ola, Randy, Naduk, and all our other podcaster pals. Playdate for our theme music, and as always, you, our listeners, for taking the time to join us. And welcome to our newest team members, sound designer Brian Garbert and social media specialist Ki Yun Kim. Next time on Sounds Interesting, we'll share the amazing origin story of our podcast in Mozart and Michelle. You can follow the Sounds Interesting podcast on Twitter and Instagram at sound underscore pod, on the Facebook Sounds Interesting podcast, or on the Sounds Interesting YouTube channel. And listen to the show wherever you get your podcasts.